and I was studying philosophy at the time, um, was really helpful to actually dismantle many ways of how we look at the world, into the world, and give meaning to things. Um, so I was, at the one hand, missing philosophy in non-monogamy, and I was missing non-monogamy in philosophy. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking to Simone von Sarlos, author of Playing Monogamy. Written for more of a lay audience, the book proposes an expanded and polyamorous engagement with intimacy and sexuality as a possible alternative. It was originally written in Dutch and published by De Beze Goodbye Publication Studio. And I'm super impressed that I said that name right. Uh, Me too. Because it's not written like you would think. <laughs> Uh, and is excited to bring this book to an English-speaking audience for the first time. So welcome, Simone. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So as I was reading this book, I, I read what uh, the publisher said, that it was like written for more of a lay audience. But quite frankly, it's a very cerebral and very like intellectual book. You really have to sit with it and think about it and kind of like process everything that it says. And, you know, Jason, I and Dedeker, especially like we've been doing this for a while now for many, many years. And yet it still proposed a lot of really interesting things that I didn't even think of before, like on any non-monogamous journey that I've had. So from that standpoint, I was very impressed. And I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. Like, and Jace also wanted to ask, like, what, yeah, what your inspiration for writing the book was and, like, where were you, why you decided to be so cerebral about it and, and bring mm. this viewpoint to it. You know, that's actually so great to hear that you experienced it like that. Um, thank you for that. I don't, now, now I feel guilty about saying that it's more for a lay audience. I think, I think that also comes from being sort of in between academic writing and writing for the public, yeah. as at least in the Netherlands it would be called, um, where writing for the public maybe also has immediately a kind of different audience where you immediately you, there's there's such a large gap between academic writing and writing for the public yeah. um, especially because the Netherlands is such a small country so Dutch is also a small language um, so writing academically basically means having no audience at all Yes. <laughs> and writing for the public means having to reach out for everybody who speaks yeah. Dutch, almost. Right, right. Uh, that's at least how I experience it as a writer. And I think that in the U.S. or, or North America, there's the, the gap is sort of smaller in a way because he, even having an academic audience means that there's quite a large 
um, English speaking audience mm-hmm. that can still reach towards this academic language, right? Or has right. some familiarity uh, of this academic language. Um, so wow. I think there's something there, even in, you know, like a cultural difference of uh, in terms of audience. Um, but then in terms of, yeah, the, the inspiration for, for this book, um, I think it's, I mean, obviously it came also from, from living non-monogamous myself. And I wrote this book in 2015. So I was 25 at the moment and I did not see any, <laughs> definitely not Dutch, but also not European based writing on non-monogamy. So all of the writing came from North America. Um, and I couldn't find any in, in my own language or just in, in a European context. But then at the same time, everything I read from, from the US, um, would always be sort of how to, how to mm-hmm. live polyamorous, uh, how to live right. non-monogamous, um, and not so much use, at least how I felt, how, how I came to non-monogamy was not so much through living non-monogamous because that sort of happened. Um, but that didn't need to have a direct label. It was much more that I felt that non-monogamy using this lens in philosophy, and I was studying philosophy at the time, um, was really helpful to actually dismantle many ways of how we look at the world, into the world, and give meaning to things. Um, so I was, at the one hand, missing philosophy in non-monogamy, and I was missing non-monogamy in philosophy. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. Because, of course, you know, when you're studying philosophy, I mean, it's mostly white men that you're reading if you're in, you know, traditional academia. Right. And so much of it is based on this hierarchizing or categorizing, getting to meaning through allowing yourself to say, like, oh, this is very important, or this is the threat, or this is the important question that we're going to be asking. And I continuously felt like, oh, I, I do not understand and feel and effectively experience the world through that hierarchy, hierarchy. Right. And so in one way, yeah, it was really like pushing non-monogamy into philosophy, but also, um, for me, philosophy and thinking are like feeling. Mm. So it's an embodied experience. So I need, in a way, I need this philosophy to be able to, to be able to practice non-monogamy because by thinking it through, it also starts existing for me. So it's not just like, Oh, you know, how can I act polyamorous? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can find that online if I want to. (laughs) (laughs) And there has been also like great work written on it. Right. I don't mean to demean any of the work that has been done. Um, but without relating it to the, the way that we, come to meaning and the way that we come to how we feel the world, I cannot be non-monogamous because then it just feels like living a set of rules. Mm. Mm. And also actually after, um, cause this was my first book playing monogamy was my first book. And I mean, I've written on many, a variety of topics after that. Um, and I start to feel now that the translation has got, has came out, um, which was four years after I've written the original version, um, that actually in all of my work, whether it is about the trial against Geert Wilders, who is a right wing politician in the Netherlands, uh, who was on trial for inciting hate 
or whether it's about memory and commemoration, all of this thinking from a non-monogamous perspective is still there, or actually just develops more and more. Right, it still affects um, the way that you approach all of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's, really there's still this non-monogamous lens and this sort of non-hierarchical attempt, at least, to think, right? Because I think that's mm -hmm. also what I find so beautiful in all the writing that is about non-monogamy and all the, the conversation about non-monogamy, that it is about an attempt. Uh, and it is a, it's also an attempt in which you acknowledge and realize that we have been conditioned in certain ways, but we can try differently. Um, so there's also this sort of utopic, uh, utopian sphere in non-monogamy, I feel at least, that I actually want to honor. And so it's like, like, oh, no, 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 it's just a practicality. You can do it. It's easy. People are doing it anyway already. Um, right. you know, which is great to have these examples, but constantly pushing for something more and to imagine a world otherwise. Yeah. In which indeed love does exist, but in different ways. That's mm. kind of a good segue into my next question, which you do, you talk about this internalized disbelief that a different relationship <clears throat> rationality is possible. But recently, I guess within, I'd say the last four years since you've written the book, there has been more of a rise of alternative lifestyles, people talking about it, people um, speaking about it in media. So do you think that this internalized disbelief has become less ingrained since you wrote the book in 2015? And if not, I mean, what are some of the ways in which we can start to let go of that internalized thought? Mm. Yeah, let me let me try and separate the, that question sure. in two, I guess, because it's, it's interesting you said the word lifestyle, right? And I think indeed, as a lifestyle non-monogamy has become more and more accepted or it has been at least more prevalent. I mean, New York times, I mean, accepted, maybe not the right word, but definitely more prevalent, more known. It's something you can refer to. And then people can, you know, like there's some articles out there that are easy to, to, um, to divert people to, um, you know, if you, if you would be at your standard sort of traditional nuclear family birthday party and some faraway uncle asks, so how, how is it? Why are you <laughs> talking about this person on last time you're talking about that person yeah. did you break up no no i'm actually together with them both and they're like oh polyamory you know like there might be this sort of sigh of relief like i've heard about this mm. um but i would be critical of the idea that indeed then it becomes more accepted or that non-monogamy as a as a sort of tool to live this different kind of life actually comes through because that's why I'm pressing this word lifestyle. I wonder whether it's not, I think too often it is seen as a lifestyle. Yeah. So as some sort of identity you can stick on or off. Mm. It is also often even seen as, you know, a choice uh, where I do think there's an element of choice in how you live your life. I, I choose to think more about non-monogamy from a cultural point of view. So like, how is it, how is monogamy invested in our culture? How did it come about? And what would non-monogamy do to our culture? So instead of making uh, non-monogamy or polyamory, um, and maybe I should explain later why I, I divert these terms, but 
but um, the way that non-monogamy is made safe, actually, you know, to make it an accepted lifestyle. So non-monogamy is made safe by saying like, oh, well, you know, it's something you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's my choice, maybe. And I came to the conclusion it works better for me. And I think that even though I do not want to pressure anybody in non-monogamy or monogamy or any other kind of lifestyle, quote unquote, um, I do try to see non-monogamy as a tool to push against a cultural hegemony mm -hmm. where it's not just about like, oh, what fits you well? Because then indeed it's like, oh, well, are you choosing yoga sure. or going to the gym and lifting weights? And I think I'm, I'm pushing this sort of... Um, this, this component of, of lifestyle, because I do think that there is, um, an easy commodification in that, right? Like there's a, um, a commodified lifestyle and, um, where, where non-monogamy is sort of acceptable as long as you carry it out in a certain way, or maybe you even have to be proud and maybe it has to be a hashtag as well. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and, and then I think non-monogamy should be a bit dangerous, by which I do not mean that people who are living non-monogamous are dangerous or dirty people in any way, you know, uh, which is, of course, also a stigma that people are fighting against. So I do not want to take away the hardships of, of people who are fighting those stigmas in their daily lives uh, and who do have to, you know, go for the narrative of coming out because uh, they might be in the closet and I'm using quote marks here as well, in the closet at work uh, as a polyamorous triangle or something like that. So I do, I do not want to negate that in any way, but for me, I hope that non-monogamy is dangerous and with dangerous, I mean that it's also, it dismantles the way we think about relationships and, um, basically anything in our life, uh, from the point of view of property, mm. um, from the, the point of view of commodity of does it work well for you in which when you say that does it work well for you there's a you right that's centralized or there's an i that's centralized uh where it's like oh something either works for you or it doesn't but should we also not talk about the way that subjectivity is constructed um where the way that you consider yourself in relationship to others uh, is very much related to this sort of I or, uh, yeah, how you view yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it also reminds me a little bit of a debate that I've, you know, that I've heard going around before, too, about the question of, you know, is polyamory queer? And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in that discussion is that it's sort of, it can be, but it also cannot be. And the definition of queer that was given at that time is that part of queerness is, is kind of um, dismantling this status quo, this kind of commodification and things like that, that basically, you know, you could be polyamorous and kind of like you said, maybe the polyamorous lifestyle in quotes, but in that very New York Times friendly, still very commodified, <laughs> still very uh, defined and it's prescribed. It's like palatable, yeah, right. for mm -hmm. people, exactly. And so in that way, you could be polyamorous and not be queer at all, or you could be polyamorous, but be queer in the way that you're going about it in terms of kind of like what it sounds like you're talking about, where it's 
the whole kind of philosophy behind it of trying to get to the bottom of these kind of, um, mm. we've been trained into these hierarchies or these ways of possessiveness uh, mm -hmm. of other people and things like that and kind of questioning that and trying to tear that apart, which is something mm. that on this show, we, we try to talk about that also in terms of whether you are choosing a monogamous lifestyle or not to maybe use mm. the quotes the other way around, right? That you could embody mm. that kind of, uh, you know, polyamorous philosophy, like the stuff that you talk about in your book, but still be Absolutely. choosing to live a monogamous relationship while still thinking in that different way, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you want to be harsh, then there's this question of why would you then conclude to be monogamous? Um, because if you're dismantling all these ideas, then suddenly monogamy maybe doesn't allow for safety so much um, because often monogamy seems to be chosen for this reason of safety, you know, like I, I want to be safe. But then also, what does it mean? Um, what, what does safety mean? I mean, it's an individual question, but it's also a societal question. And I know you talked about this on your show as well, right? Like couple privilege, for example, mm -hmm. um, right. and the safety that people get through being in a couple or through appearing monogamous. And I think for me, this is also one of the reasons why I prefer to use the word non-monogamous or non-monogamy uh, over polyamory, because if you look into the history of polyamory, it's a very short sort of and mostly white and middle class history, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. mostly centered in North America. And it kind of excludes uh, many moments and many lives that were lived non-monogamous, but aren't necessarily labeled or categorized as non-monogamous um, and definitely not as polyamory. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is, for example, in Saidia Hartman's book, um, Wayward Life's Beautiful Experience, Experiments, sorry, um, she writes about black women in North America um, around the 1900s and these wayward lives, right? So there's uh, women who have queer intimacies, interracial intimacies, mm -hmm. intergenerational intimacies, but but most of them are non-monogamous intimacies. Um, but instead of being called polyamorous, for example, um, they, uh, they are viewed as sex workers and they're criminalized as sex workers as black women and then then you see that this this idea of monogamy uh, is very much related to safety, not just on this individual choice level where I like, oh, I feel safer in a monogamous relationship, but also in terms on a societal level, you are literally more safe when you are in a monogamous relationship. Uh, because one way that, uh, and this is of course, you know, uh, written about the 1900s, but one way to be safe back then for black women was to get married. Right. Um, and so, so I think, um, uh, and, and another thing I'm thinking about, for example, uh, is Gloria Becker's book, uh, The Politics of Passion, mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe also a little less known, uh, in the non-monogamous region. Uh, but she writes about Afro-Surinamese women. Uh, Suriname is, is uh, was a former colony of the Netherlands. So this is a, a close history to the Netherlands, but, um, where women would live together in, in what we would 
consider, I think, non-monogamous constellations uh, have relationship with each other, have relationships also with men, which I guess we would call bi, right? Um, but then having a very different language for this and never saying, for example, I am lesbian, mm. but saying I do the mati work. So doing also instead of being. And this doing is related, uh, for example, to the, the spiritual religion of, um, uh, of Vinti, which is the name for wind, where you would think that a certain spirit comes to visit you at a certain time. And that spirit might like to lie down with women. Mm-hmm. So that would make you desire at that moment women, but the spirit can also go. So having a lot less of this sort of... Um, the sort of identitarian yeah. way, yeah, right. labeling yeah. Uh, way of experiencing your sexuality and your your behavior. Um, but but also then, I mean, I'm sorry if I'm like taking it off, but <laughs> but that too leads to this this idea of safety, right? Like mm-hmm. because if you label yourself, you're safe. So depending, of course, where you live, but it's kind of, I mean, at least in the Netherlands, it's very it's safe somehow to be gay but you do have to say you're gay right you do have to be sort of you do have to carry that label because if you carry that label they can categorize you and i'm saying date it sounds a bit too big brother but (laughs) but there are of course you know like whether it's data through facebook or whether it's um government data Mm -hmm. um there are of course a lot of profits uh being made of the categorization of our identities right um yeah with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, and that was also, I remember growing up, you know, growing up during the 90s, particularly when I feel like the the conversation about gay rights, basically, before we're even getting to marriage, but just about sort of discrimination and things like that, when I feel like that conversation was really kind of hitting the media a lot that the question that it felt like to me was sort of central to that was this question of, do you have a choice? Like, are you just born this way and that you're just, you're born that way. And so if that's true, like kind of the logic goes, right. If you're born gay and there's nothing you can do about it, then it means, well, either God made you that way or biology made you that way. And so therefore it's okay. It's okay mm-hmm. as long as you didn't mm-hmm. get to choose and you just are this thing, kind of that identity, like you said, rather than just, mm-hmm. oh, I, I do gay sometimes. That that's like, oh, well, if that's what you're doing, then we can condemn it and we can say, mm-hmm. no, you should make better choices or that's somehow wrong. And so in that way, like arguing for that being an identity, that being a rigid thing, was maybe strategically the move to make it be acceptable to then be able to defend it and not get fired for it and things like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's kind of, um, it just furthers that, that identification, that being rigid, like you have to fit this label or you don't. Yeah. Need for normalcy. Mm -hmm. Right. Within our society. 
Interesting. Mm. Yeah, and it is also meant to uphold a mainstream being, right? Like it's this idea of, oh, 10% of the population is gay or queer or LGBTQIA, right? right? And But then like this percentage, why do we need it? Okay, we needed to upkeep the 90% that are then considered a normal. And this is maybe when I'm saying like, oh, I want non-monogamy to be a bit dangerous, is that I also kind of, when I think about, you know, like the New York Times way of presenting polyamory, it is indeed so much made to be about a lifestyle that there's not, you know, there's not this sort of warning of like, be careful, non-monogamy is contagious, Right. And I think there should be sort of, you know, like this, this sort of warning. And I mean this in a joyful and, and playful way, but I think there should be a warning because, well, maybe it's like revolution is contagious. Um, in the sense that. Yeah. When it is not about this, indeed, like you're saying, right? Like it becomes about this identity and it's something that can be contained, but it becomes about having a critical lens. Um, Towards also, for example, I mean, I know that you talked about the relationship escalator on, on your show, mm-hmm. right? This idea of going through a certain linear timeline where the only end of the escalator is, you know, death. either breaking up and then it all failed yeah. or death, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I, you don't have to, like you were saying, you can still choose whatever that, then means, but to live monogamous or to not have sex at all. And then how are you going to categorize yourself? Right? Like this is also, uh, can you be asexual and polyamorous? Yeah, you can, but so you get this constant shifting. Um, but speaking about this, this relationship escalator, um, this idea of moving through time and developing through different stages. I mean, this is something that we don't only see in monogamy or in relationships it's something that we see in every aspect of our lives when we look at um currently the abortion bans um in the southern states of the u.s people will say it's medieval or we're going back in time but we're not actually going back in time we're not going down the escalator or down Mm. the stairs we're still on the same we're still in the same time but there's this idea of like, oh, if you do not like something or if you think something is backward or something doesn't belong to your reality, mm-hmm. then it is something that is in the past. So it's backward. It's medieval laws or it's this idea of the, you, you can separate yourself through being in the future versus being in the past. Right. Like and, this idea that progress is like a linear thing through time. Well, and you talked about that with relationships as well, that like we always as a society tend to be like, well, I'm glad that I went through that relationship, even though it failed because it made me into the person that I am mm-hmm. today or it made me stronger. And the, I thought that was really interesting because again, yeah, it's like, well, I'm leveling up a little bit and, in relationships somehow by going through this challenge that I no longer am having anymore or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we as a society just always want to like get to the next thing, level up, be better or whatever when it doesn't really work like that. That's kind of a, con- mm-hmm. again, a construct in our mind, I guess. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it even relates to Dan Savage idea of it gets better, mm-hmm. right? And at the one hand you want teenagers who are desperate to know that there is community out there and there is, you know, but, 
But to say it gets better also sort of, um, goes into this idea of like, yeah, there, there are, everything needs to be linear and have, have progress, progress progress in it. Um, where maybe it doesn't necessarily get better. Right. And for who does it get better? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I wanted to question, okay, you, you talked about, uh, how, potentially your book playing monogamy could be interpreted as a plea for greedy individualism. So I found this to be really interesting because I do think that Western society tends to prize individualism more than like tribal cultures or really family-based societies. But so can you speak to this a little bit, like why so many people do feel guilty when they put themselves and their desires first? Because I agree with you that like, even if we Mm. are a society that cares about the individual, we still also really care about the nuclear family and things along those lines. So can you speak about this a little bit here? Because mm. I found that to be really interesting. Yeah, I think there's there's different things at play there. I mean, for one, I think there's an actual agenda behind making people feel like they're individualistic when they turn themselves against a nuclear family, right? Mm. Because that's that we need to be told in order to keep up the idea of the nuclear family being a sort of natural responsibility, um, something that helps us go outside of individualism. I would personally say that the nuclear family and individualism go perfectly together. Um, because indeed, like you're saying, if, if we're imagining societies um, whether it be our own society um, that changed throughout time or whether we attempt to look at other societies without wanting to utter them, right? But there is, there must be many ways of living outside of the protected nuclear family um, where we say that the nuclear family is a way to keep ourselves safe. So then you see that the, the nuclear family is instrumentalized to keep your own, own sort of sort or speak. Well, I wouldn't say species, but your own people safe, um, which of course completely conflicts with the actuality of what happens in families, uh, in terms of abuse or violence. Um, so there's, there's a weird tying, tying nuclear family to safety. However, what worries me more maybe, and this is where I'm like, oof, I hope it, I, I know that I'm also guilty of pleading for a greedy individualism because I cannot escape, um, this conditioning. But the reason that I say that or what I'm, I'm mostly scared of is that I, like we were talking just now about safety so much and by pleading for a different way of looking at how to be safe or how to take risks outside of that, which outside of the, the usual patterns, um, it easily can, can, can look like you need to be a very strong individual in order to do that, or you need to be a very conscious individual in order to do that. And I think non-monogamy or polyamory as a tradition has a bit of a problem there because it's very language-based. And there's often a lot of 
um, pressure on communication, mm. right? Wanting yeah. to be non-monogamous. There's this idea of you need to be able to communicate well. You need to be able to be willing to communicate. And though I agree with that, there is also a difficulty in that because it also privileges language as a way of being, um, as an ability, uh, where you could wonder whether there would be other ways of communicating with each other um, that wouldn't just be through language and differentiating and being nuanced in language. Um, so I think that's that's one danger there. Um, and yeah, I also think that I, I'm very wary of it because it is easier to play to 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 plead or to argue for stepping outside of safety when you are in my case privileged mm. in many different ways mm -hmm. and uh, where unsafety is not the basis of my existence to give the easiest right. example i've never experienced poverty so me pleading for a certain mm -hmm. level of unsafety It might not be the right way. However, saying that the way that we are taught safety can be reached might be a better way because by saying that, you might also attach yourself in, in when um, to ways of being that are in itself already precarious because of the inequalities, inequalities in our society. What do I mean by that? It's just... I think it's, it's, it's very difficult from my standpoint. Um, also somebody who lives in the Netherlands has healthcare, uh, for example, um, and say, Oh, unsafety, unsafety. <laughs> um, right. That it's not the right, you know, I'm not the right person to continue pleading for that. On the other hand, I also think that by, avoiding precarity we're also avoiding lives that are currently ingrained and embedded and fundamentally build on precarity hmm. just by the way that society has created inequalities hmm. Yeah, if this makes sense I mean it's something that something that I've wondered about sometimes because yeah, what you're saying is so true that like, especially with something like polyamory where most of the people talking about it are privileged, right? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, even, even if they're not all white men, they're still types of privilege, right? Whether it's economic or just mm -hmm. the country that they live in or education or, you know, there's, there's lots of things there. And On the one hand, it's on the one hand, I can see an argument for yes, but because those people are, like you said, not living constantly with, you know, unsafety being sort of a defining factor in their lives, that those are the people who it shouldn't be as safe for. <laughs> that maybe those are the people who need to be living it in a way mm. that is a little less safe because they can afford to do that. Mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than keeping that something that the people who already are struggling with, with that more, with being more disenfranchised or being more even physically at risk, 
um, rather than kind of leaving it to them to still be living unsafely, that perhaps people who mm. are privileged giving up some of their safety to be to be changing the way that people think mm. and to be uh, to be the ones that people can look at and um, you know to be the ones people can engage with to try to change the way that mm. everyone treats people and hopefully through that making the world a little bit more safe mm. or the less safe if that makes sense mm. I don't know if I kind of lost the thread of my philosophy there <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think what I would add to that, though, that it is a structure of amplification, like who gets to speak, mm, because true, then yeah. returning to this idea of, you know, polyamory versus non-monogamy and choosing, in this case, non-monogamy, because the term opens up towards histories and current lives that are otherwise not seen as polyamorous. And I think... Um, there's many lives being lived currently that we wouldn't say are monogamous or we wouldn't categorize them as not mono as monogamous, um, but that are in the mainstream discourse then seen as failed, failed, flawed, um, unhealthy, uh, but that they're not amplified as sort of, you know, like this, this, Oh, but no, but I choose to be non-monogamous or, and I can even explain you why and excise it. Um, so I think that is also, I mean, this is a, this is, this is something this is often acknowledged, right? Like this idea of like, oh, in order to, to be openly poly, you have to be healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of be presentable in your right. non-monogamy. Yeah. And I think that is definitely a pressure that most non-monogamous people go through. But I think there's also not just a way of how non-monogamous people have to present themselves, but also how non-monogamous people and monogamous or whatever people have to um, train their ear towards lives that are already living otherwise, mm -hmm. but that we do not categorize and see and that we do not think valuable of a New York Times piece. Sorry to continue <laughs> using <Yeah>. that. Um, <laughs> because we do not view it as a lifestyle. Because it doesn't start from indeed is this sort of 100% privilege and then diverting. No, it's diverting without ever, ever having adapted hmm. to the, to the sort of societal norm of what a healthy lifestyle is. And I think it is, then we often see that, that this becomes actual marginalized lives. Uh, this is, we still expect people. I'm saying we, I don't know who this we is. But society still expects people that they want to get married if they do not seem to have access to that. I mean, one of the examples in the U.S. is, of course, uh, Katie Cohen's work on black love, uh, black families, having uh, uh, marry your black daddy day or something like that, as she calls it. I'm sorry if I'm phrasing it wrong, but um, there's these pushes towards marriage and this idea also that... Um, not being married um, is is sort of telling or a, sign a signifier of failure. Right. Where actually yeah. this is also a, a form of non-monogamous living that is not being recognized as such because there's still this expectation of a certain norm that, you know, if only people weren't so poor, mm. they, they would also get married. <laughs> Or they would also yeah. choose long-term partnerships or one partner for raising their kids. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there is a lot of assumption based in that, in the the social worth of it. And I think that's really interesting to make that, to relate that to how we look at um, at poverty, at income, that it's like, yeah. <clears throat> if only they had the money, then they would be married, or then they would be monogamous, or then they would <laughs> only have kids with one other person instead of several, or, you know, whatever it is that we do. Um, I, it was just assumptions. Yeah. Was just hearing a conversation earlier today that was saying huh. almost exactly that of the kind of equating poverty with having multiple baby daddies was mm. kind of the, the mm. context of it. And that's very true that there is that, that, is, that link of like, Oh yeah, it's just linear. Like if, yeah. You know, if you had more money, you would also be a better contributing member of society, which means being monogamous, which means only, you know, only having kids with one other person, which means getting married, which means, you know, whatever, owning a house, whatever the signifiers mm. are. I feel like sometimes yeah. they change a little, but they do tend to be based around these either like accomplishments or possessions. And yeah. I guess with some of them, <laughs> yeah. you could even look at them as the same thing. Um, okay. Sorry. All right. I, yeah. I want to move on to our next question here. Uh, we <laughs> There's so getting, much to say and to theorize on. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> we keep getting distracted with philosophy. That's fine uh, though. <laughs> it's great. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. Um, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so this next one, uh, so many passages in your book, um, it reads like poetry, I think, yeah. you know, it's got that sort of philosophical poetic sort of way of writing. And oh, at one point, <laughs> yeah, at one point you talked about how love and death are both industries based around the dollar based around making money. Um, and mm. rather than just read a bunch of quotes to the audience, I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on this and, um, and then maybe if we could also get yeah. into not only pointing out how that's true, but what are some ways that we could live outside of that? What are ways we could conduct a relationship that isn't based around, uh, money being spent or mm. being earned by it? Hmm. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it starts sort of, for me, it starts with this idea of love is love, right? Because when uh, same-sex marriage was legalized in the U.S., um, obviously love is love went viral mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's still a well-used hashtag. Um, and I started to wonder, well, what does this mean? Because as a philosopher, this is, you know, this sentence, love is love, is like, well, <laughs> what does this say? <laughs> <laughs> what do we mean? Yeah, three like... words with two words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, not so poetic. Um, um And then, and so it's this question of like, what do we mean when we say love? Okay, we mean monogamy. It's like monogamy and love are sort of synonym in that too, because it's so surrounded about having same-sex marriage, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's this question of signifiers. What signifies a love relationship? How do we recognize a love relationship? And this is almost, for me, this is almost language philosophy, right? Like it's... Mm -hmm. Okay, we see two people walking hand in hand. This must mean that they have a romantic love relationship. Mm. Um, I must sort of interject here that um, my lover is, one of my lovers is a, a lot older than I am. So when we walk hand in hand, people often assume she's my mother. See, right. um, so I guess that also happens. Um, but there is this assumption, right? Oh, we just want to walk hand in hand. And you even hear this in... Um, gay, gay couples often saying like, Oh, yeah, I just want to be able to walk hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Now, I do not want to negate anybody's freedom, uh, or anybody's choice, where, wish, desire to walk hand in hand. Um, this should, of course, never be responded to with violence, but to be, to say, to claim this as the sort of ultimate freedom and to say like, this is what I want because I love somebody and thus I want to walk hand in hand kind of takes away that Actually, walking hand in hand is also a signifier. So it's also mm. something that was constructed as meaningful and as a form and a gesture of love. There's not any natural sort of, <laughs> there's not a natural ca cause for wanting to walk hand in hand as a sort of expression of love. There could be many, many other ways. Um, so... When you talked about death, I mean, one of the things that I uh, see so significant or one image that I find so significant is, for example, when I was living in New York and there's the, 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 the site in Brooklyn Dumbo where you can see the water side, you can sit at the water side and you can see the skyline of New York, right, of Manhattan. And people get their t picture taken. Mm -hmm. And it's this moment where if you sit there for a while, you will see many different couples, But even though there are many different couples, they're all couples. So they're all, always one and one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're often straight, but not always. And when the woman is pregnant, there's these four hands on the belly, right? Like, so there's this whole choreography mm. what, of what this picture looks like. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about indeed death and, and grief and mourning rituals where I'm like, oh, you know, like getting your picture taken as a couple looks very much like being at a funeral home that at least in my experience, being in a funeral home usually means that after a while, you start seeing another family coming in that also has booked the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of acknowledgement of like, oh yeah, okay, in, in mourning rituals, we need sometimes, or in grief, we need rituals in order to feel. It's not always that you can access your sad feelings. Um, you cannot always access your grief, but we have those rituals developed, whether they work or not, mm -hmm. um, that help us feel. 
So sometimes you place the ritual first and then the feeling comes through that. We know mm-hmm. that rituals of mourning help us feel. When it comes to love, however, there's such a different causality because it's sort of like, well, I really love this person. Therefore, I want to be monogamous. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I want to get my picture taken in front of the skyline of Manhattan. And I'm, I'm ridiculizing it a little bit, of course, but I think there is a truth to that, to say like, oh, but I really love this person. And just thus, I want this. Instead mm-hmm. of saying like, well... I've seen other picture, people taking their pictures as a couple together. Um, and I think that if I do that as well, I will feel good about my love. I will sort of strengthen and establish my love feeling. So saying that the ritual in this sense shapes the feeling of love instead of saying and always claiming that love goes in f- before this sort of ritual. Um, yeah, can I just something that, that yeah. struck me while you were talking about that is something that I remember for the first time, maybe 10 years ago, really kind of um, getting presented with the importance of ritual and how, you know, how important that can be kind of like you're talking about, like the rituals we have mm-hmm. around grieving help us to feel or to process things. And what's striking me right now about what you're talking about is this question of, I guess, the difference between a ritual, which is sort of to serve a purpose either for an individual or for a community or for a group that's still kind of an internal purpose versus what I think maybe you're talking about with the pictures uh, is like a performance and like a performance Mm. versus a ritual that's an interesting question there because mm. it's making me think about, um, for example, in, in Japan, I spend a fair amount of time in Japan, uh, with Dedeker and we went to this, um, Buddhist temple. That's this particular one is specifically devoted to, um, dead children to put it bluntly, um, mm. whether that's abortions or miscarriages or, uh, infants who've died And what I learned through this is that there is kind of a whole tradition around that, a whole ceremony that say, if you've gotten an abortion, there's a ceremony to, um, Mm. kind of, you know, offer up, a uh, like a little statue and sort of to pray to the spirit of that child and to, you know, kind of have some, have some processing around that. And, Mm. uh, and then I learned that there's been some research that that the instances or the duration of depression after uh, after an abortion, when doing that kind of ritual, it does mitigate that. Like it makes that amount of like isolation and depression a lot less because there's a way to process it as opposed to being something you just have to hide and kind of think about on your own. Uh, and mm-hmm. so in that way, like I think that ritual is so important uh, and yet, like you're pointing out, on the other hand, we can sometimes take something that could be a ritual and we, when we put it on social media, it now becomes a performance. And it's well, less and about... like even religion can be one of those two things as well. It can be sure. both ritual and just a performative way right. of doing things. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. That's interesting. It is still like this construct in our mind that like, well, I'm doing this thing and I believe that it will help me and, and move me you know, onto the next thing or whatever, or make me better in some way. 
which is interesting. Mm. And I don't know the performance aspect of of being in a relationship. Yeah, I guess it's like, who is that for? Is that for yourself? Is that for society? Is that for the other person? I don't know. It's, mm. it's but that's very interesting. Yeah. It struck me so much when I read that part because I'm like, damn, wow, that is so <laughs> true. And I don't know how to do. It's like, how do you even do things other than that? I have no yeah. idea. <laughs> and it was, no, we don't. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, indeed, I, I don't, I would, I would like to say that I have nothing, actually nothing against performance or ritual and or ritual, um, not even nothing against. I think it's actually how we create life, right? So if you're asking like how to be outside of that, I think actually through playing, through creating other performances, then the performances that are naturalized as love. So I don't think there's there's something wrong about having a performance mm-hmm. in order to evoke feeling. I just wish it wouldn't collapse, right? Like I wish the performance of love or couplehood wouldn't collapse with um, with saying that this is just how you feel love. Mm-hmm. With saying that this is because I feel love. I need to take, get our picture taken because I feel love. I of course want to show it on Instagram. And I'm not saying that this is, there's necessarily something wrong with that. Um, I just wish that the causality would be a bit more stretched and be like, well, if I think that I feel something, why wouldn't I express it in another way? And I think that would be one way to go out of it, right? Like that would be one way to try what would happen if I perform differently towards this one person um, or two people or four. Um, <laughs> but if you just imagine a dating session, uh, a dating night, right? <laughs> like I'm just making this up right now, but, <laughs> um, where you're sort of, you know, you're, ex- there's this expectation of going through a certain set of questions or at, at one point showing somebody that you like somebody, but then, or not. Um, but then what if you would, Allow yourself to have the same sort of feeling. What if you had already felt that you kind of like this person or you would kind of like to continue this night, but you would perform completely differently, completely different than you would be expected to. Could you still feel that you like that person or would you feel completely otherwise? Like which is the cause and which is the effect kind of? Exactly. I mean, we do talk about like being really mindful about our relationships and choosing, you know, what does work best for us, I guess, and and Mm. speaking about those things. But it is so interesting to see like even down to the like minutia of it all down to like I'm performing essentially the same type of thing on a date. You know, we talk, we have a drink, we have a little, you know, flirtation, get more into the the intense conversation then are we going to get a kiss at night are we going to call each other again like it does follow this this linear kind Mm -hmm. of fashion of what you know basically what our lives look like like down to the smallest Mm -hmm. detail that's so interesting and that is something that i don't think I, i it sounds like to me you are asking just people to disrupt that in a way or to at least think Mm. about it to at least go you know question like why am i doing this if i did it in a different way would it can it be just as meaningful and just as profound Mm. Mm. yeah and i think indeed i mean 
maybe this goes back again to this idea of safety, right? Like what if it doesn't need to feel good? And I don't mean, this is a very difficult question, you know, because you immediately, it's like, oh, are you saying you shouldn't have consent or something? I don't, I don't mean that, but I mean that in terms of we our bodies, it's not just our thought, it's our bodies, which is our thought, which, mm-hmm. you know, and vice versa, um, are conditioned to feel good at certain moments, not just because we feel good, but because we feel we're not disrupting mm. something that is, you know, a body muscle almost. So it's not just like, you probably are able to think outside of this this, this, this fashion of saying, like, oh, you know, we're sleep a kiss, maybe call, um, you can think yourself outside of that, but how does it feel to even to act outside of that? Mm. And to not say that if I act outside of that, this is immediately my identity. But to say, if I act outside of that, because we have consensually sort of come to a disagreement of like, let's play together. Instead, in this sort of like, let's try something. Let's try a different performance. Let's try a different ritual. And that's something that when you said, when you talked about this, this ritual that you witnessed, this ceremony, um, I was completely with you till you said that research showed mm. that it helps people in their healing. Because I was like, well, what, what if we can trust ourselves enough that we do not need research mm. in order to understand the need for ceremony, for ritual, for play, for performance? That we do not ha- need to have this sort of rationalized or um, legible making research that says that our feelings <laughs> exist in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that is the risk. That is the largest risk. It's sort of like how how to live without having this measurement Mm. Mm. that tells you, yes, indeed, what you're feeling and doing is true. That's interesting, because I feel like, and something that I think you talked about earlier, about this idea of, you know, making effort to be not hierarchical in the way that you think about philosophy and things like that, with the acknowledgement that I put effort into it because I know that it's been so ingrained in me and that that's so in me that if I just try to pretend, oh, I'm not going to be hierarchical, I I am. And that kind of having that awareness of, uh, you know, to use a metaphor, like the awareness of the water that you're swimming in uh, allows Mm. you to then take actions to get to a place that is more, um, I guess, more neutral or more unaffected ironically by affecting yourself by intentionally steering yourself away from it. And, and so I feel Mm -hmm. like for my experience, at least the the importance of research and things like that, rather than just quote, trusting ourselves is that is that sometimes we're not the best at perceiving ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so having something outside Mm. to give us a vantage point can help to then do those sorts of corrections. Yeah. So yeah, that's oh, that's great. That, yeah, I like that. Yeah, interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we're starting to come up a little bit on time, 
Um, I it's funny because we're going to talk more in the bonus episode, and I initially had an idea of what I wanted to talk about in that, but now I'm like, we should just continue these conversations because <laughs> they're so fantastic. Maybe we can uh, do both. Yeah, exactly. I did want to ask where everyone can find more of your work and what is next on the horizon for you. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if we can even well, find it in English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's one of the things. So, I mean, funnily enough, um, talking about ceremony, my last book just came out a few weeks ago, um, the Dutch one, on memory and commemoration. And it's talking about um, the way that memory can weigh us, uh, weigh us down even out of action. So, like, how to take action maybe through forgetting. But then it also goes into well you know you can say forgetting but that totally depends on whether your history is documented or not Mm. um so i talk about white remembering talk about white erasure and then i go into embodied and daily commemoration so then we get the body in again right like this of what are the practices we could think of um that would would help us commemorate uh so you mentioned ceremonies um that is one way. There's so, there's so many different ways of embodied commemoration, but it would be less about having sort of monuments, having uh, written history, all of these kind of things. But this is all in Dutch. Um, <laughs> so for our, so for our Dutch-speaking audience, they can not. check that out. But what can <laughs> our English-speaking listeners find for you? Playing monogamy. This which book, I, clearly. Yeah, which people absolutely should read because... I think it, it it blew my mind in a way also that this conversation kind of blew my mind, but it definitely makes uh, it's it's just so, so powerful. It's a easy, you know, it's it's a quick read, but it's you really do need to sit with it because there's a lot to digest and unpack within it, in my opinion. Right. It's, it's Great, short, but you, you need to spend yeah. some time sitting yeah. with each can, section to, to get it. Can people find it on Amazon or on various, uh, where is the best way in which to, to get the book? Through Publication Studio. Okay. okay. And Publication Studio is a worldwide network of publishers. Um, so depending on where you are, you can get it through the nearest by uh, publisher, okay. Publication Great. Studio. Yeah. Okay. We'll okay. try to add cool. a link or... Yeah. do something in the show notes for sure Thanks. perfect yeah and then yeah we're going to stick around and do a little bonus episode for our patrons um where we're going to talk more about this maybe get into your social wheel of five but i also am really interested in talking about hierarchy with you some more because we we touched on it but that's something that our listeners are interested in for sure so i do want to discuss that so thank you so much for joining us simone to everyone listening at Thank home, so we would love to hear what you think about this. Was there anything that was mind-blowing for you? And you'll be like like Emily did when she was reading this book. She kept texting quotes to Dedeker and me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> being like, oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> maybe that was your experience. Or maybe there's something you feel like we totally missed that you wished we'd gone into. The best place that you can share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-0-5. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. 
Nalti Emery is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.